Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, welcome back. It's episode 185. Uh, today's November 12th, 2020, and this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Blake Garnsdorf. Hey, y'all. How you hey, doing, Blake? Nick? Hey, man. I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. We're back. Yes, for, we are. Yeah, we're back. Uh, <laughs> we got a great news story to talk about, and we're going to be taking a question from uh, one of our Slack members this week, uh, but we're going to be talking about the first crude Hyperloop and how it was a success. Crude as in people in it, not crude as in uh, like, a, like a bad joke or something. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that. Um, just just looking ahead here for the programming notes, uh, I want to you know just kind of talk about the plan for the rest of the year here. So next week we'll have a normal episode. Uh, it's Thanksgiving here in the states uh, the week after that, so we'll be taking that off. Uh, then we're back for three episodes in December, and then we'll be off for a couple weeks as we round the new year, and then we'll be back. Uh, to break down all the news stories right after this. Just kidding. We're still here for now. So, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> for now. <laughs> for now. Um, but, yeah, that's just a quick kind of update for where we're going. Um, so, again, next week we'll be here Thanksgiving here in the States. We will be taking that off. Uh, but, Blake, I man, it's been like two weeks because we unexpectedly took a week off last week. Yes, what, we did. what have you been up to in this two-week time period, aside from making bad Photoshops? From making bad Photoshops, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you may or may not have seen those or may or may not see more. Uh, but, yeah, so amongst the bad Photoshopping, I'm preparing for Friday the 13th tomorrow, better known as the release of Call of Duty, the next iteration. I think it's Black Ops Cold War. So I'm super excited for that. Actually, so I think two weeks ago, I may have brought this up where I had a really good experience with my Xbox, and that continues to happen. So I actually hopped on like a nerd, actually before the podcast a few minutes ago, to go ahead and try and auto-install, because if you pre-order it, you can go ahead and pre-install it. And to my surprise, as I turned it on, because it's been a week since I turned my Xbox on, it just automatically did it. So yet again, seems like the Microsoft world and the ecosystem is really coming together trying to make the experience of downloading and playing games really simple and and just streamlined. So I'm super excited about that. Midnight should be fun playing zombies and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. I'm gl- I'm glad you brought that up because there's a there's a couple of folks that I've been talking to who uh, have the new uh the series x i think that right the xbox series x i think the new one that's i guess next gen but now it's current gen because we are it is out there so it's now current gen which is weird uh so it's it's the it's the new console that just came out this week um and i was talking to them about their experience and they said it was very easy to get it set up um where like you know the, the xbox itself will be downloading updates and it says, hey, by the way, just download the Xbox app on your phone and we'll get you all set up. And you basically pick all your settings on your phone for the console while it's getting set up, while it's downloading all those updates and getting set up. Oh, that's so that rad. Way, as soon as it's done, it just pulls all the settings from your app. And I know Xbox has put like a lot of attention to detail in sort of the user experience side of things where, um, you know, they are really envisioning the app. Uh, to be kind of like an extension of your gaming experience, right? So if you take a screenshot or or um, 
uh, video in a game, you, it's really hard to share that stuff from a console, but it automatically pushes everything to your phone so you can just share it to your apps that are on your phone. And they're kind of using the phone as a conduit to uh, relay that information out. So that's really cool. And I, I really appreciate the time and effort that team has like kind of put into that experience. It definitely shows even on just like basic UI updates too to the not to, not to like games but to the general just Xbox itself. Like it's everything's a lot cleaner. The navigation makes way more sense than it did even like three months ago. Um, and just some of these some of these interesting experiences with onboarding of games has been great too. And it's it's been really cool. That's awesome about the making the app more of an extension of the Xbox. And I, I definitely think that's a smart way to go for any of these gaming yeah. companies. There's a cool video out there uh, for those of you who are interested that actually goes into that design team's kind of philosophy of the app and and user experience behind it. And it was it was a cool uh, watch, you know, especially coming from someone with our background who does this for a living. So you can kind of see where they're coming from and what their philosophy was for trying to make this app. So it was it was really neat um, and definitely worth a watch if you're uh, a gamer of any type. Like I'm I'm bought into the uh, PlayStation ecosystem. Um, I have an Xbox 360 from way back in the day, and you know, I, I'm a gamer just in general, so I have a bunch of different accounts and stuff. So um, it was it was interesting to me, but I think you, anyone, uh, no matter what ecosystem, you can kind of appreciate the thought and effort that went into that. Yeah, it might even be cool if you just are interested in just design team philosophy too. Um, so yeah. I haven't seen it. That sounds really fun. So I'll check it out after the podcast for sure. Well, yes. Nick, what have you been up to, man? I know last week you weren't feeling so good, so how's everything no. going this week? <laughs> uh, everything's better this week. Um, so I-, I talked on the show a couple weeks ago how like anxiety and depression were running high, uh, and that was largely due here in the States. We had an election. You may have heard about it. What? Um, and yeah, so it's this big thing where everybody goes out, or in this case, doesn't go out, and they fill out their stuff and they send it in uh, to say who they want to basically be our king for four years, um, and uh, king or queen, idea. king or queen. It's, yes. it's yeah, and uh, so it's kind of crazy. Um, and so you know that whole week it was really wild uh, because I was glued to cable TV for <laughs> for like. A whole 72 hours straight. It'd be like, go to sleep, wake up, turn on the news, what's going on, have the votes come in in Georgia, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's going on? Uh, and, like, you just needed to know all the information. And it's it's um, one of those, like, because of some of the policies that were in place um, that was deliberate, uh, you know, we couldn't know the results election night. And it's one of those things where it's, like, delayed um, information, like because they're of the volume of information that needed to be tabulated delayed um communication of that information uh has has been um kind of really uh an issue i guess uh, to put it lightly like i mean i don't think it's any secret what side of the aisle i'm on so it's uh you know this could have been handled <laughs> a lot differently and sure. um you know, but I mean, good news is that we have uh, a historic president uh, and vice president elect, so that's awesome. Very cool. Um, yeah, it, it was a uh, it was definitely an interesting. I feel like entire week. Uh, but one thing that I had a really hard time with, and I had to call 
like a friend of mine and just get her to explain it to me was like looking. So I don't have cable TV and I tried not to watch the news because I just can't stand it. But I was so I was Googling it to watch some of the poll graphics and things like that. And they were so hard to interpret because there was like there was different shades of colors being used and they indicated one thing yeah. versus another. So you're basically Which, watching you know, what what do you, what's going to happen. And I had projected it going a completely different way just based off of data visualizations. Yeah. Well, which one were you on? Were you on AP or were you on like DDHQ or? Hell, uh, I don't know. It's whatever one that <laughs> came up from Google to- Googling election 2020. So um, that was Associated Press. So ah. yeah, the way uh, the way they did it was, um, and, and we can talk about data visualization and how, we can talk about this whole like red mirage uh, concept that actually happened and how it's fascinating because it tells uh, an interesting story, right? Um, and to me, the whole time I was watching these results pour in, I was like, until we have enough to declare a victor or, or, or call a state, basically, why are we associating these... these uh, like lighter shades of blue and red to these states that are leaning one way or another, because we know they're going to change. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. So on election night, because uh, historically a, a, a lot of um, conservative voters will go in and vote on election day. And then you'll have, um, you know, the, the Democrats will vote by mail and that will be a kind of um, that's a trend, right? So on election day, all those results are tabulated uh, wherever they can be. And so over the course of several days, you'll see what once was red and it slowly turns blue because as they count those mail-in votes, then, you know, it's leaning more one way uh, than the other. And so, um, you know, a lot of people knew this, but a lot of people didn't. And I think that data information (laughs) display uh, on the Associated Press, I think it did actually have those shades, right? Where you had red. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then like a lighter red and then a light blue and then a blue depending on where it was at and whether it was called or not. And um yeah, I I can see how this type of information uh could be really confusing uh for someone who may or may not have followed it. So, I guess my suggestion is kind of going back to uh Tufty, right? Like you know, just do the bare minimum. If it needs to be red, it needs to be red. If it needs to be blue, it needs to be blue. Anything yeah. in between, don't do it until it's called. Um, you know, because uh, there was a couple instances where it was one thing and then it switched to the other. Um, and that happened on both sides, right? Like you had Florida, which was blue on the night, and then it switched over to red. And Texas, which was blue and switched over to red. Um, and then you have other states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia that were red and then shifted blue yeah um and it's just like it 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 it, i don't know i feel like it was this massive sort of information problem and you know you have um and then you can talk about just the whole issue of whether or not to call a state and and math and data behind that and how do you communicate that yes california is blue polls just closed how do you know it's going to be blue well like you know that that kind of thing is is how do you communicate that type of information? Because if somebody were to click on California and see 0% reporting, and it's like they called this state. How did they call this state? Well, it's like California is always blue. You know it's going to be blue. Um, and, and there wasn't a good uh, way to share that information. 
Um, and I, I don't know if you were following this on the days leading up to it uh, either. There's this website called 538, um, which is the total number of electoral college votes. Um, and so you uh, it, on this website, they were uh, doing a bunch of different predictive models based on polling. And this was kind of a collection of data um, that was really fascinating to like keep up with. And, you know, they would show odds of winning over time and they got pretty close um, there were a couple really key differences uh, that happened, um, you know, and and uh, the polling was off, but it was it was really interesting to kind of keep up with that as well. So anyway, just a whole lot of uh, anxiety over the election, and now of course there's Georgia that has two runoff elections that will have to uh, you know to be continued, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, anxiety is still high, uh, but not nearly as high as it was like a week or two ago. So like you know, there's it's coming down, but we still like, there's still a lot riding on that. So I, I don't know. That's, that's where my headspace has been. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I, I at least wasn't in the right mind to podcast last week. So that's why, um, that's why we didn't, we took a minute for just a little insanity. mental health break. All right. I do have to say, uh, there is one guy, um, that I want to give a shout out to. Um, he is, I think it's called agenda free TV and he's on YouTube and he'll, he was doing a great job of like finding, it's really cool. Cause you'll like cable news, you'll have like these pundits who will talk and speculate on, on things to fill airtime. Right. Yeah. And what this guy does is he will cover different events. Like a couple weeks ago, there was this Irvine fire, um, you know, here in, in Southern California and, and he was covering the election. But what he'll do is he'll follow like people on Twitter. He'll find uh, reliable sources of information. So he, he was following somebody like in the Georgia, um, the, the place where they counted the votes. Uh, and so they were live in their tweeting uh, what was going on. Um, oh, wow. And then he was looking across different places in the Internet. And like with the Irvine fire, he was like listening to scanners and doing like plane tracking so like it's a really cool way to ingest the news because he goes about finding information the same way i do where you look at different sources and you synthesize that information like a scientist yeah exactly and it definitely shows this guy is really awesome so agenda free tv if you're if you want to go check him out um i'll give him a free shout out because he just does a great job uh and he tries to be unbiased in his reporting um and that's nice too so uh you know, go go check that guy out. Anyway, um, <laughs> any other thoughts on the election before we move on? No, it was just kind of wild to be feel like I was at the fingertip or I, there was like access to so much data in terms of getting to watch numbers play across and to see a lot of data visualizations. But it was funny to me to still be very confused, um, even though I had what I felt like was so much information at my fingertips. Um, but it's 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 just interesting. And that's I wish I had actually known about like the what'd you call it? i think you called it 538, 538. yeah yeah because i i just think that that predictive data modeling stuff is so interesting to watch and just to think about like the algorithm behind it um so awesome and i'll keep that in mind four years later yeah well i don't know if they're gonna do it for georgia or not but i'll i'll certainly um let you know if they do uh, awesome. anyway all right i think we move on to this next part of the show 
That's right, Human Factors News. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors News, where we talk everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from, we got transportation in there this week. Sometimes we have privacy, security, robotics. Uh, You know, we had a couple robotics contenders this week, but we want transportation. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it's fair game for us to sit here and talk about. Blake, what do we have up first this week? All right, first up this week, so Virgin Hyper, Virgin's Hyperloop has taken a massive step closer to realizing its new form of transportation with its first crude test. So, crude test, not crude test. At the company's Dev Loop facility in Nevada, two passengers were fired through the 500-meter tube on last Sunday evening. And the company says this marks a new frontier in the development of space tube vacuum technology. So Virgin's Hyperloop representatives have indicated there was a heavy focus on safety, given the level of attention the journey was likely to provoke. And they were, so both of the crew were walked through the tube and shown the various exit points and procedures to ensure that should anything fail, they could get out of the capsule. The pair actually traveled in a brand new second generation Hyperloop pod, codenamed XP2, the Pegasus pod, and the XP2 was designed to comfortably seat and support two passengers, both with seats of beast with beefy five-point harnesses, as you can imagine, and the sort that you'd kind of find in race cars, but there were only slight modifications used for the test. So that's because the pod was designed to mirror a real Hyperloop journey in as many ways as possible, and real things were envisioned more like a subway than a rocket ride. So in order to maintain a comfortable experience for accelerating and braking, the capsule's speed in this test was limited to 107 miles per hour. That's still pretty fast. But greater speeds are likely to be demonstrated when the second Hyperloop facility is built in West Virginia. So this is wild, Nick. And you actually reminded me that Hyperloop was originally an idea, I think, that came from one of Elon Musk's companies that they open sourced. And it looks like Virgin has actually picked up the torch and started running with it. Yeah, he did it. He drew it on a napkin and just decided to open source it and said, hey, I had this idea. You can do whatever you want with it. Took a picture and put it on Instagram, and here we are. Yeah. Um, now, this is pod racing. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> this is this is cool. And um, I want to talk about a couple things here. So, uh, something that I was thinking about as, as you were reading this blurb here. Um, they are talking a lot about human comfort in this situation. Um they have these seats with these harnesses to make you feel safe, presumably. I mean, they're also for safety, so that would make sense. Um, but, you know, th- that's the real only modification that they have for the pod. Uh, and and they're trying to mirror the real Hyperloop um, journey here. So, um, you know, I think the interesting thing to me um, I thought there was a subri- subway ride, right? You, you mentioned subway ride here in the uh, blurb. And I, I wonder if, and I'm sure this information is out there, but I, I just, I didn't think about it before the show. I would have looked it up. But I wonder if they have done something with the frequency of like lighting overhead that would make it seem like you're not going as fast as you actually are. Or if, you know, because you can do a lot with, uh, perception of what's around you to ensure that you are um, perceiving, you know, correctly. Um, it, you're traveling at 107 miles per hour, at least in this test, with the actual thing to go faster. Right, we're talking speeds like 500 miles per hour. I think is what they were talking about in a in a finished product or something. But um, 
you know, what does that look like? Because I had imagined lights every couple feet would give you a seizure uh, for some folks if it was just on off on off on off, right? Where, you know, you might want um, a different frequency of lights along this thing. Anyway, I was just I'm going on a tangent about lights, but I mean, let's talk about this. This is awesome. We just had a, a successful Hyperloop test. Seriously, yeah, and. It- it's crazy that this is only at half speed, I guess, or somewhere even less than half speed because we're looking at like 107 and I think the pod is projected to go 240. Uh, so that's wild to me. But you're right. The sensation and perception aspect of it is a big deal because what do you do in terms of letting people see outside of the pod and do you just enclose it? What's going to make them more comfortable? Uh, but I, I did enjoy kind of hearing about the amount of safety features they're kind of building into this thing. Um, but the thing that I was really confused about is I didn't understand that this was like building vacuum tube transportation. And so now it makes so much more sense why they're one testing it at lower speeds. But the the amount of kind of engineering that has to go in behind this Hyperloop concept is insane. And I've I'm really excited to see what happens when they build the next facility in West Virginia and if there's any kind of thought of how they're going to connect the two. I don't know if they're going to connect the two. I know they are um they're they're building these as like testing points, right? Cuz I yeah. can imagine if if we're like we we picked this story for a couple reasons. One, it's cool, but two, also to talk about the future of transportation and kind of what that promise looks like from a human factors perspective. Um, and we can kind of springboard into that conversation a little bit here, but I'm thinking these two facilities are just testing facilities where somewhere down the line, you might have a multi-state agreement, at least here in the States, right? It could be different elsewhere, um, or something mandated at the federal level that, uh, demands a public transportation service span a certain distance, right? So imagine like a West Coast Hyperloop, go to Seattle, uh, to um, San Diego in like what I guess eight hours or something like I don't I don't know what that distance is, um, but you can imagine uh, you know that that um, that type of infrastructure being built along uh, a, a, an entire stretch of land that connects several different states could provide a massive shift in the way that we transport not only people but goods as well. Um, you know, right now, so looking at the distance from Seattle to San Diego, it's about 1,250 miles. So if you go the 220 or so, this is rough math, people, I'm like doing this on the fly. So if you do what, just, just, let's just say 250, right? If you go 250 miles per hour, um, that would get you from Seattle to San Diego in five hours, uh, in this tube. Um, you know, of course with like probably 15 minute stops in between each, uh, or maybe less. I don't know. Um, they could just have these things going on rotation like toboggans, right? Especially if it's two people pods. I think they'll probably make larger pods um, for more passengers. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, the thought of going, um, spanning the entire uh, top to bottom of the U.S., I guess, at least from San Diego to Seattle here on the West Coast, uh, you could do that in eight hours. It's just, or I guess not even eight. Wait, what did I say? Five almost? Six. Let's say six hours uh, just with the added time. And um, yeah, so I mean, just being able to do something like that uh, is amazing. And then then if you think, 
beyond that, and you create different lines, San Diego to New York, Seattle to New York, um, you know, Seattle to Florida, you can go from one corner of the U.S. to the other corner of the U.S. Uh, in probably a matter, like, you do an overnight and you're there. Um, and so that type of thing is really interesting to me. Uh, to th- yeah. to think about this this sort of um you know as as these public transportation methodologies become um sort of more easily accessible i guess we're not quite there yet right we're still in the testing phase but as this becomes more accessible you're going to revolutionize the way things are transported humans included um you know and and presumably uh, a system like this wouldn't take that much to run, uh, and that's kind of why this promise is so um, interesting. Is because you have uh, sort of this, um, you know, all it takes is to create a vacuum and to uh, initiate maglev uh, capabilities within them. I think I, I don't know if this is if Virgins is the one that is doing maglev, but I know that's a plan for one of them. So anyway, I think this is pretty energy efficient in terms of how that goes. Um, and yeah, I think I think this just provides a lot of promise for the future of transportation. And it's really something I'm excited about. Yeah, and I'm hoping when they get out of... Because I, I think you're definitely right. These are both what's in Nevada and what's projected to be in West Virginia are specifically just testing sites for humans and small pods. Um, and I'm assuming these pods are very much in prototype stage too, because even though they've got like, they're sleek, sleek looking and have like, like normal looking seats and things like that. It does look like in the, if you blow up the image from the video of what we, what they show for people traveling for the first time, it looks like they have kind of like an emergency stop in between the two of them in case something was going wrong. Uh, and I would imagine they would take that out in a more public transportation setting. But I think one really great point you bring up, Nick, is the transportation of not just humans, but goods. Because in something like this, where, you know, it's it's a technology that's going to be tested at a bunch of different sites. And when they build the first real Hyperloop, let's say, from San Diego to Seattle, a great way to kind of test the the capability and get a proof of concept for people to be comfortable with would be maybe transporting goods from one place to another to really understand from a testing perspective, how does it work? Do we run into a bunch of problems with the vacuum tubing or any of that before there's a bunch of, you know, more projected human travels. Uh, But that would just be so wild to be able to transport things like that up and down the coast or across the country. And then imagining without having to get on a plane, you know, go from West Coast to the East Coast, um, which for somebody like me who has family on the East Coast, that would be incredible um, in a matter of hours. Yeah, I want to say, too, I think we may have posted it in the Slack, too. Like, I'm I'm thinking pretty high level here with like these national routes, Um, but there's there are people out there who are thinking sort of more locally, right? So like what does a single state or maybe just over a couple states look like, right? So there's like um what does it look like from um if you go through uh, like Miami to Orlando and Florida, right? There's a proposed route that, you know, you you can do uh and that's that's a pretty significant distance, um but it's still contained within one state, so you might actually be able to pass it through uh, law there, right? There's one from LA to San Diego, of course. There's one from Reno to Las Vegas. Um, so these are all within the same state. There's a couple that go beyond states, right? 
where you have one that goes starts in Houston, goes through Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, up through Amarillo, and then ends in like Denver area. So you have um, you know Denver, Colorado. So you have that kind of um, uh, sort of S path through Texas and up through uh, through New Mexico, up through Colorado. Um, so you have uh, these these different routes, and then how they all connect, if they connect, uh, could be really cool, right? You have like Seattle down through um, Eugene, Oregon. Um, and I think this is this is uh, sort of a really interesting concept where um, you could have multiple different things, and if you could daisy chain them together uh, with ease, or if you know, thinking in the future, if you build a bunch of smaller ones of these with interstate, intrastate, interstate, if you build them all within the same state, um, then you could have sort of these transition phases where you have you know like maybe it comes out of one facility hops on an automated vehicle puts you over to the other one where you don't even have to get out right and it's it's kind of this um automated routing thing where if you want to end up in new york you go from san diego to la and then la to las vegas and then las vegas to um you know denver and then you know kind of just daisy chaining them through and there are different places in which you can route but there's it would add just a little bit extra time because you're getting on like an automated platform that puts you into the right tube um so i don't know man like th- this whole thing is just kind of <laughs> kind of crazy to me and, That's and what does that what does that tube transfer system look like you know is it like is it just a bunch of tubes coming out in one area and like do the pods just come out and then you transfer the t- pod to the other tube I wonder if instead of because of what you're describing, like the pod transfer, it just makes me think of, of course, some kind of futuristic world that we don't yet live in. But it also makes me think of the boring company, the idea of building all these kind yeah. of networks underground. So why not instead of allowing cars to be doing that, like focusing on moving these tubes around in various places and popping them back up to the next vacuum tube? I don't know. That's that's a really good point that you bring up, and I think it, it brings with it a lot of challenges from like a system of systems point of view. Because now, now you're crossing different state right. lines, and that requires a lot of you know interworking between states and technology, and even at a federal level, I would imagine, because this is dealing with transportation. Um, it I don't know. It's it's really exciting to see how sleekly and awesomely this is designed, but obviously there's a long way to go before it's in the in in the state where you're going to see like people being able to actually use it or we're transporting things across the country. Yeah. I mean like even think about where SpaceX was 10 years ago, right? Was SpaceX even around 10 years ago? That's Um, a really great question Uh, or a a good way to kind of frame it too, how fast this stuff can grow. But I mean, yeah, if you think about something like that, right, they just got certified. So they've been around since 2002. So they've, they've been around for like nearly uh, what, 18 years, I guess. Yeah. Um, And so, if they've been around for 18 years and they just got certified to um, sort of, you know, take, take crude uh, payloads up in space. Um, we might, we might not see something with the hyperloop for another 15 years uh, or, you know, even potentially less. We never know. Um, yeah. Cause but- it's still got to get a testing phase, much less get approved in different States and stuff like that. Right. And, and so, I mean, it, it's, within our lifetime for sure we'll see it um it's just a matter of like how fast can we get there and what kind of resources can we put it something like this that would truly revolutionize the way that we 
as humans travel across land um, and also revolutionize the way that we transport goods across land. Because once you have those routes to potentially more rural areas, you could create a city in the middle of nowhere um, with very little. Uh, because if you had a pod that brought stuff in from Long Beach, California, and shot it straight into the middle of the country, you could have a city right in the middle of the country um, that just relied on that system to bring stuff in, right? And and you could, I mean, that's kind of what happened with the, with Denver and Salt Lake City. You know, you have these cities with major airports. Um, I could imagine something like that happening happening similarly with. Uh, another sort of in the middle of the country state where you just have this like massive city that comes out of nowhere because it's like a connecting hub for everywhere else uh, geographically in the United States. And we're just thinking about the United States because that's the geography that we're familiar with. But really, any country in the world could utilize this, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then imagine that just being able to transverse anywhere, depending on where you are in the world quickly. Um yeah, that begs the question too. Like, how much longer will will like rural society really exist uh, if there's things like this that can transport this kind of stuff anywhere and allow more people to build cities in different places? That's that's yeah, a pretty if, wild thought. If you think about too, like if you think about a, a mega city in the middle of the continental United States too, right? You have all these other states that would benefit from it because. We talked about this with the whole uh, supply chain issue with the airplane drones a couple weeks ago. You would then eliminate a point if it goes right through, you know, your state. You can just take it to the nearest um, tube and send it off to the middle of the country and have it distribute it, you know, wherever. Right? Like, it'd be kind of crazy to have something like that happen. Um, and I, I could, I could totally see it happening. Yeah, it almost could become the the automation hub, if you will, where basically all goods and services are sent into the central place and then distributed through different means that that way. Uh, right. Versus having to worry about where you're located to get certain things. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, I don't really have much else to add except for this is an awesome kind of progression of this Hyperloop. I'm really excited to see where it goes and to kind of keep tabs with it. Who knows if Human Factors Cast will be around in 15 years, but we can talk about when it's an actual thing then. We can actually go on a ride, maybe. That would be amazing. Get on an actual <laughs> ride and fly around in one of these things. That'd be nuts. Die of a heart attack because we'll be uh, a thousand years old at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Uh, all right, man. Well, I, I don't have anything else on this. Do you? No, I'm just really excited that it was open source and it's been picked up by a different company. And it seems like actually a lot of different companies are going to work on the same technology in the States and throughout the world. So I'm just super stoked. This is going to be cool when it comes together. Right there with you, buddy. All right. Well, I want to thank over our friends over at Engadget, uh, Virgin Hyperloop, and Popular Mechanics, where we sourced all the information for this uh this breakdown this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles in our Slack where we find them. Uh, so join us over there for more discussion. We'll be uh, taking a quick break. We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. 
Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. We still haven't updated that. That uh, we need to update that uh, that commercial because <laughs> we yeah. have so many so many new things. That commercial was made a couple years ago, but we have so many new things. Uh, we got a merch store. We got Human Factors Minute over there, which is still chugging along and still a ton of fun for us to produce on this end. Um, yeah, we're always changing our uh, Patreon rewards. We're doing, um, you know, we got new stuff in there. If you sign on at the $10 level, we give you a, a free tote. You know, there's there's stuff on there for you if you want to help support the show. And like I said, everything that you spend towards us, we spend towards the show. Uh, there's no BS about that. It's It goes to um, hosting our website, hosting our our. our podcast on the service it goes to stuff like that it even goes to you know sending us to hfes so we can bring you that type of coverage so uh anything truly helps uh because it will go right back into this show we want to make it the best we can um hey quick little fun fact for you blake as we were um on break i did a quick google search for the geographic center of the united states do you want to guess what state it's in first off We'll, we'll start there uh i don't know Let's go with one of the Dakotas. All right. The Dakotas are very north, so uh, it's brave Bummer. of you. Uh, <laughs> it's actually in Kansas, um, and it's so. it's quite a bit away from Kansas City. Uh, well, I, I, I don't want to say quite a bit away, but um, it's a couple miles away from Kansas City. But there's a small little town called Lebanon in Kansas, uh, and the geographic center of the United States is about two miles away from there. So I can just imagine Lebanon becoming this uh, ultra hub for everything United States uh, transportation, you know. Um, you know, like I said, there's that Kansas City uh, is is pretty close, uh, but that's over in Missouri. Um, you know, so we're talking about another state here, which is always weird to me. Kansas City's in Missouri. Anyway, so with that, uh, that's just a little fun fact before we go ahead and get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. It came from Slack. Yes, this is the part of the show where we don't actually have to search very far this week, uh, but we bring you topics the community is talking about. Um, this one actually comes from Noah in our Slack. Uh, Noah goes on to write, does anyone have experience with being the only human factors person in a scrum team? I know a question about scrum was handled the other day, but my question specifically is how to handle generating requirements and acceptance criteria. Uh, I'm aware that I generate the research um, and I'm okay with writing epics and stories. I'm also okay with writing the acceptance criteria for those. But once we get down to the system level, I envision doing a sort of handoff to the tech team. How does this handover work? Any pointers would be appreciated. Blake, do you have experience working on a scrum team, writing requirements, any of that stuff? I have experience writing requirements and a little bit of acceptance criteria. Um, but this Let's is, start there. Yeah, so this is an interesting like question that you're asking here at the end. So do you hand something off to like a systems engineer at some point? And the the real answer 
I bet you guessed it. It depends. Because one thing that I'm actually fortunate enough in one of my teams currently where I have to, I work with somebody who has a human factors degree, but has a very much a systems engineering background and approach to solving problems. So when, when I think of acceptance criteria, I have to think of it in terms of both software acceptance criteria and what that means in terms of control logic. Uh, and then what does it mean in terms of rendering things on a graphical user interface? And on top of that, what does that mean for user stories and how do we write them? Uh, so I think a lot of that decision-making and what you're going to end up handing off for acceptance criteria and requirements is going to depend on your team structure. So I'll, although, like I know you, you said we answered questions like a couple weeks ago about a scrum team, I would encourage you to figure out what really the, and I'm assuming you know, what the structure of the team is or what the makeup is. And maybe even asking them, like, what's the expectation from a, from a human factors perspective? Because if they're already generating requirements and acceptance criteria, but that's, and you're doing it from the user perspective, then maybe that's all you're doing. You're focusing only on from like an end user point of view, this is what needs to be done and what needs to be rendered. Um, and then they're going to handle interacting with you on how to write it from a software perspective or an engineering perspective. Um, Nick, you have a lot more experience like working on a scrum team and understanding that entire philosophy. So I'm sure you have some insight here. Yeah, I, let's let's just talk about this um, holistically here. So talking about requirements and acceptance criteria, I have experience sort of modifying uh, criteria, acceptance criteria, as well as requirements um, from the user perspective. Like you said, I I rarely find myself actually writing requirements. I think that a lot of times comes from on high on the projects that I work on. And so those are kind of handed down. And then you kind of review them from that perspective and say, hey, if we change the language slightly here, this would make a lot more sense. Um, so, uh, you know, just in terms of, of uh, maybe this is helpful. I don't know. I Like I said, I've never actually written requirements myself. I know the format. I know the structure. I know how to write a good requirement. Um, but I think a lot of that comes down to um, the system developers, right? Who's, who's actually going to be um, writing those requirements, or I guess the product owner, product manager. Those are the people who are going to be creating those. And then you, your role, at least from my perspective, is to kind of help them and modify them. You're the expert in human performance. You're the expert in, in the human side of things. So approach it from there um, and say, hey, if we, you know, uh, obviously what Blake said about communicating expectations is very important for this. You don't want to step on anybody's toes and you don't want to say, hey, I think your requirement is wrong. So this is a very sort of precarious situation that you have to approach with um, sort of, finesse, right? You have to sort of make sure that when you're presenting these alternatives to these requirements and acceptance criteria, that you are saying, hey, from a user's perspective, um, I'm advocating for the user, just try not to step on anybody's toes there. Um, in terms of sort of uh, system level stuff, I, I like I wouldn't like I, I wouldn't imagine someone in our role would go in and say the system shall um do, I don't know, like an automated procedure so that this, that, the other thing, you know, interfacing with these web components, that's not our stuff. If it says the system shall provide the user with a blah, that's where you might want to specify a little bit more, you know, specify a little bit more detail 
but also it's tricky because you don't want to write yourself. Uh, you don't want to. You don't want to basically design through requirements. Um, that is another kind of tricky piece to this beast. Uh, you don't want to say like there shall be checkboxes for this thing because then that writes you into a corner. Um, leave it vague, but leave it descriptive enough to where uh, the user's uh, needs will be met. Um, that's kind of where I'm at. In terms of handover, that's that's an interesting um, like, like there's a couple different handovers to me. There's there's that interaction that you have with the PMs and POs about requirements, um, and you know basically how they see uh, the the requirements being uh, met, and and then there's so there's the handover of the modified requirements from the user perspective, and then there's also sort of these acceptance criteria, which you could technically hand over to like a dev team even when you say, you know, I'll, I will know this is complete when X is um, represented on this design or whatever. So, and, and that's another um, sort of tricky situation. You don't obviously want to kind of, uh, it's that whole communication piece of, of how do you translate design into code and how do you communicate that effectively to the people who are going to actually make a system out of it so i don't did you have anything else to add to that blake i i know i was kind of word vomiting there oh you're all good uh i think your advice is sound i really ultimately i would encourage anybody in our slack that has questions like this or noah himself if if you want to ask us more clarifying questions or if you want to have a back and forth with us that would be helpful or that might be the best way we can help because i don't i think from my perspective i don't know what your teaming situation is like because if you're in the situation that i find myself in most of the time i'm a contractor so that interaction with a development team is very strained same thing with the systems engineering team but if you are in-house working together as a team this should be a lot easier for you to kind of handle um, bringing requirements and acceptance criteria from the user perspective and talking to the developer and the systems engineer to say like this is a thing that we know operators or users need and here's kind of my high level acceptance criteria but what what does that mean from a system perspective and then what does that mean in the implementation perspective this this is one of those places where i feel like this should be a very integrated and working together process and i don't think it always pans out that way um, but the more communication you can have about this the better off you're going to be uh, I, I'm definitely in my, in the human factors side of my role. I'm much more comfortable writing the epics and user stories than defining requirements. Uh, cause like Nick said, I think that gets a little bit sticky, especially when you're thinking of how a system's going to complete it and what a developer needs in order to create something. Uh, so I would definitely get clarification on your expectations for your role. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Blake. Uh, so I think, uh, that's, that's really all I had for this question. Um, any last thoughts? No, not really. But please reach out to us if we can help you any more. Because uh, this is kind of us going off top of our heads uh, without a lot of context. Yeah, and, and for sure. We'll, we'll go ahead and uh, continue the conversation in our Slack. Uh, so look for it there. It's in the general. So, uh, so check that out. All right. Uh, well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. What do you think the future of transportation is going to be? Uh, you can always join us on our email. Uh, sorry, you can always join us on our Slack or follow us on any of our social channels at H Factors Podcast. Or if you want, you can send us an email, show at humanfactorscast.com. Uh, if you like what you hear, you want to support the show, you can do that in a couple different ways. You can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice, 
or consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, and of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to figure out how to reverse uh, image search an image on Google? If you want to reverse image search an image on Google, you can always find me in the Human Factors Class Slack at Blake or across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory because it's more than just common sense.